Um, I'm Carolyn Carr. I'm the deputy director and chief curator here at the National Portrait Gallery. And I'm delighted this evening to uh, talk to you about Kate Millett. She is a major figure in our exhibition called The Struggle for Justice, an exhibition that is about really social change um, in the 20th century. And clearly Kate Millett, along with Betty Friedan, whose portrait is on the wall next to her, were major leaders in the feminist revolution. Uh, I thought I would divide my remarks into three parts. Uh, first of all, to tell you something biographically about Kate Millett. Uh, second, to talk about some of the statistics that were in the 1970 uh, Time Magazine article uh, about her. And then thirdly, to tell you something about um, the artist Alice Neal, who did her portrait. Um, we have this particular portrait, which was used as a cover for the, an August 1970 issue of Time Magazine because the National Portrait Gallery is the repository for the original art on Time Magazine. So we have a lot of interesting portraits and it was particularly useful before we changed our bylaws in 2001 to collect living subjects. This is how we got living subjects into our collection. Uh, Kate Millett was born in 1934. In fact, as I looked at this portrait of her done in 1970 when she was 36, I thought that's one of the nice things about portraits. It keeps you, they keep you young uh, forever. Today, obviously, 40 years later, uh, she is 76, very different time uh, in her life. Uh, Millette was born in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. She grew up there. Um, clearly, her childhood played a leading, a major force in her politics. Uh, her father was abusive, ultimately left her and her two sisters. Millette was the um, second of three daughters. Uh, and she saw that when her mother had to go out and earn a living um, to support her children, that jobs commensurate with her intelligence and ability were essentially not available to her. When she finally landed a job, uh, selling insurance, the men in the company um, were given a salary as well as their commissions. She only earned her living by her commissions. Um, Millette graduated in 56 from the University of Minnesota, uh, Phi Beta Kappa, uh, cum laude, magna cum laude. Um, she then had a fellowship to study at Oxford where she got a master's degree. Uh, she came back to the United States for a couple of years, decided that as many young people who were trying to find themselves, that perhaps she would earn her livelihood through sculpture. And so she decided to set off for Japan. She went to Japan in 1961. She's had an interesting, varied life and career. Um, there, um, she met her husband, 
I forget his uh, she met her husband, Fumio Yoshimura, I think is his name, and they came back to the States in 1965. Uh, Millette considered uh, teaching and realized that in order to teach at the university level, she would need her PhD. So she enrolled in Columbia University. And I have to tell you, I don't know how many of you here have struggled for your PhD, and when you finish it, what you pray for is that somebody will publish it. Well, Millette had the good fortune to have a thesis topic that was a hot topic and that was timely. Her thesis for Columbia was the book Sexual Politics. And I had the pleasure of skimming that book again recently, and I was absolutely startled, and I can see why it made such a tremendous impact. It wasn't just merely a thesis that women have been systematically put down, that it is a patriarchal society, it started with literary examples in the 18th century, went on to the 19th century, and took it up to the mid-20th century by um, quoting Henry Miller from The Tropic of Cancer and The Tropic of Capricorn, books that I can tell you in the 1960s were outlawed in the United States. So she was clearly on top of her uh, literature. Uh, a clever agent uh, realized that this was a timely um, thesis. Uh, Betty Friedan had written uh, The Feminine Mystique in 1963, um, had founded uh, the National Organization for Women, uh, which Millette had joined in 1966. That is, it was a moment of change, a moment of realization. The reason, one of the reasons that Time Magazine selected her for the cover was that the book sold instantly 15,000 copies. Well, today we hear, you know, a million copies here, a million copies there, but I can tell you for a dissertation, 15,000 copies in hardback is a lot. Um, Millette was not happy with being on the cover of Time magazine. And in fact, she refused to sit for her portrait. And if you had been here in 1998, you could have ha heard her talk about the portrait and being and Time magazine and the impact that it had on her life and her career. One of the reasons she did not want to be on the cover was the women's movement was seen as a leaderless movement. No one was supposed to stand out, get notoriety above the other. But that's not really how it happens. Every movement, while it's a collective um, entity, has somebody who stands out uh, as the spokesperson, and that was uh, Millette. The interesting thing about the Time Magazine article was not only did it make her a persona non grata among some in the women's movement, but it also noted that she was 
to use the phrase of the day, bisexual. And this talking about uh, her lesbian interest tanked the book sales in addition to embarrassing her mother uh, tremendously. And I like to think of the change that has occurred in society uh, today where people look at not what is someone's sexual orientation, but rather what kind of an individual are they, what can they contribute to uh, society. Um, and in fact, let me, the Time Magazine article, and you can probably find it online, is interesting because it both took the women's movement seriously, at the same time there was a little uh, jocular put down in the tone of the writing. What fascinated me were this set of statistics that said in 1970, 9% of the faculties at universities were women. Today, it's closer to 50%. It said 7% of doctors were women. Today, med schools have an enrollment of nearly 50%. And it said 3% were lawyers. Well, right now, something like 51% of the classes in law school are women. You have to remember, this is a time when the men's school, Yale, strikes me, Amherst, Williams, were schools for men today. They, within the next five years, they all converted to co-ed. It was a radical, uh, dynamic change. What happened to Millette after this article, in addition to the fact that her book sales dropped? Um, and how many of you have read Sexual Politics? Take it out. It's hard to find a copy. Take it out of the public library. They have several copies. You will find it interesting. You will also be rewarded because Millette is a dynamic writer. She is, you can just feel the energy and the anger in every sentence as she lays out uh, the literary case for female oppression. In 1971, she used some of her um, royalties to buy a farm in upstate New York, which was to be essentially a feminist collective. Um, she then proceeded to have a nervous breakdown. She was diagnosed as bipolar. Uh, this angered her enormously, the fact that she could be so easily incarcerated in a mental institution, um, and she got the laws ultimately changed in Minnesota, so it's not quite so easy to have somebody um, held against their will. Um, she continued to write books about her relationship, about her mother's illness, and again, this energy is there. She is probably today not, well, so much has changed in the kind of leadership that is needed for, uh, to continue the feminist revolution. And she is probably not one of the people that you would automatically think of. I like to say that anger it's a great catalyst, but not a useful strategy. And I think that's an easy way of defining her subsequent life. Uh, as I said, she refused to sit for this painting. So Alice Neal, um, 
who was just in the 1970s beginning to ascend in terms of reputation, was asked to do her portrait, and it's done from a photograph. Alice Neal is one of the great figurative painters of the 20th century, um, and in fact, the portrait gallery owns about six of her paintings, including her great self-portrait, a portrait of um, the vitamin C person. Um, Anyway, six self-portraits. Um, Alice Neal was born in 1900. Uh, she went to the Moore College of Art and Design. Uh, she married a fellow art student, a Cuban, uh, Enrique, uh, Carlos Enriquez. Uh, went back to live with uh, his family after they had had a daughter that turned in Cuba. That turned out not to be a successful um, strategy on her part. The couple came back to New York, um, ultimately had another daughter, lost the daughter to um, a diphtheria. Um, Alice had a breakdown, the marriage fell apart, etc., etc. The interesting thing about Alice Neal is that she has always been a great painter. She was a great figurative painter in the 30s, in the 40s, and in the 50s. But Alice Neal got virtually no recognition until 1970, until the same time as all this ferment was happening uh, in society. There's an article that every contemporary historian, art historian knows called, was written in Jan published in Art News in January 1971. It was written by Linda Nochlin and it was called, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists? And her thesis was that women were cut out of accessibility to schools. And the only sort of historical people that you hear about are women whose fathers were um, artists and therefore they were, got sort of homeschooling. Um, anyway, this article was interesting because it again had its share of statistics and one of them that was mind-boggling was that of the 101 person exhibitions that the Museum of Modern Art had done over its lifetime, only three were devoted to women. So these numbers that point out these huge discrepancies were again facts that were useful in changing uh, people's perception. Alice, who had been painting since the 30s, became the poster child in some ways of, of the movement among women artists to gain more visibility. She'd always been working. <coughs> so in the 1970s, she gets a show at the Whitney, she gets a show at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Art, and literally her reputation grew enormously and continues to grow uh, today. Uh, why was Alice willing in 1970 to paint from a photograph as opposed to a life sitting? After all, if you look at her portraits, she's great at capturing the personality of the individual. I think it's because she wanted to be on Time Magazine, and also she too was a supporter of the feminist revolution. And if you look at photographs uh, of Millet at that uh, time, and you look at this portrait, I think you get a sense 
of the energy and intelligence of this individual. So that's my little talk about this portrait. So if you have any questions, feel free. Um, who? Neil? Millette. No, she didn't. She spent most of her energy um, working on this farm and collective and writing. If she had, if she taught, it was only in small, part-time situations. At least from the biographical information I read recently. Is she still living? Yes. Yes. She no, I, she may be there, but the last the last public um, visibility she had was that she led a tenants' revolt against. See that anger? It's very useful against the city of New York, so that they did not confiscate the apartment building in which she lived in the Bowery, and unfortunately, she lost that legal battle. And that's kind of where my access to information about her remains. The, the, um, the time she came here to the gallery in 1998, you mentioned, and when she was discussing what, I mean, I know that's a whole lecture in, in and of itself, but no. I mean, what, did, what was her mood like? Well, she, she was, I must have been away because I don't remember hearing it. And the only thing I have is a file copy of her speech, which is absolutely fantastic and has that same, you know, hard-hitting energy in it. And what she does is says, you know, this is 28 years later, almost 30 years later, three decades later. And I want to tell you about Time magazine, at which point she looks at the covers and says it's still a patriarchal society. And something like 90% of the covers are of Caucasian men. And then she said the only women who appear on it, it was really wonderful, uh, are entertainers. The movie stars, the singers. She said there were two, two of the political figures were one of taken seriously. One was Indira Gandhi, and the other was Margaret Thatcher, who she said was represented as a building. <laughs> and so I have to go and find that Time magazine cover of Thatcher and see what it really looks like. And then she said the other category, of course, is wife of the wife of the president, the wife of General, Mo you know, whatever. So she had not forgotten her roots when she came to talk about this painting. But the first thing she said in the talk was, I did not want this to happen. Do you know anything about the background? You know. uh, I can guess. And that is, uh, if you've ever been to Alice Neal's studio, uh, she had lots of large plants sitting in it. She lived on the Upper West Side of New York, sort of near Spanish Harlem. And uh, I think she just filled it in with the plants behind her. One of her great paintings is of her um, daughter-in-law called Nancy and the Rubber Tree. So I think that's where this comes from. She had a great, she had a great sense of color. 
Thank you, folks. Uh, this wraps up a month of exploring our, our time collection around and about the museum. Uh, next week, we're going to move a little closer to a copy of Vogue when Lauren Johnson speaks about Mark Jacobs downstairs at Americans Now. Hope to see some of you then. And thank you very much, Carolyn. Thank you.